Well, greetings, church. My name is Jason, and I still have my mask on. <laughs> um, I'm one of the elders at Church in the Square. Grateful to get to open up God's Word with you. It's uh, so fitting that we have our assurance today in Hebrews chapter 6, because it's that promise that God made with Abraham that ultimately he makes with his people, that he will be their God, that he will be faithful, that he will be our God, that he will be faithful. Um, and what God is faithful to, as we consider that today, is not our hopes, not our dreams, not our desires, but actually he's faithful to his word. And uh, that's always better. It's always better than uh, him being faithful to our words, believe it or not. Um, and for many of us, that's an important consideration for us today. But the God who promised and was faithful to Abraham is the God who has promised through his son and is faithful to his people, his church. And so we're going to consider that today, the faithfulness of God, and look at Romans chapter 3. So meet me in Romans chapter 3, verses 3 and 4 will be our primary text. We're continuing to consider Paul's letter to a group of diverse Christians in the first century in the city of Rome. And it's it's a crowd, a group of people, not unlike those whom Jesus routinely spoke to. And in particular, a group that he spoke to in Luke chapter 15, when Jesus told a, a series of stories that culminated with one of his most famous stories, uh, the parable uh, of the prodigal son. And it was a story really where he was characterizing these two different kinds of people that he was speaking to that day. Luke tells us that there was tax collectors and sinners as well as Pharisees. And if you recall, the the primary audience for Luke and Romans are both Jews and Gentiles. So those who are religious, who grew up in the things of God, knowing the promises of God, loving God, memorizing scripture, knowing the Torah, knowing the Hebrew Bible, knowing and and even following the words of God. And yet, uh, as as Paul really unearths in chapter 2, they had often grown stale and ultimately legalistic and looking at God's word as merely things that they were to do and not a pathway to discover and see Jesus and to ultimately understand who he was. And yet there's another group of Gentiles who had a different kind of temptation or a different kind of impulse, perhaps, which was to lawlessness and believing that ultimately they could find the good life uh, without need of God's word. And so many of us at Church in the Square find ourselves in one of those two categories. Likely you and different parts of the day feel yourself in both of those and in different parts of quarantine or the pandemic probably find yourself in different spaces, whether the legalist um, or the lawless person. And yet this is what's so good in the midst of that crowd. God often and always, I think, speaks a particular kind of word that addresses both of those things. And so today he will, by his grace, through his word, communicate his faithfulness. And if you're prone to legalism, you need to remember that God is faithful. He's faithful to his word. If, you, if you're prone to lawlessness, you need to be, remember that God is faithful, that he is true to his word. And so faithfulness in particular, I think, is one of those ideas that's really familiar to us. Like we hear a lot about, a lot about it, and maybe we even use that word a lot, and we encourage one another that God will be faithful or that God is faithful. But like many familiar ideas in our faith, our familiarity tricks us often into believing that we understand it or even believe it. And so if you recall, the question when we come to God's word is is never, have you heard that before? Or is that something that sounds familiar to you? But the question that the scriptures always ask is, do you believe it? Is this really the way you're ordering your life? Is this really the way that you are organizing your life? Is the faithfulness of God, then in particular, at the center of your understanding of yourself and of the world around you? 
And so this is what Paul uh, writes to those first century believers in the church there in uh, Rome and by God's grace through his spirit now speaks to us. So Romans chapter three, verses three and four read this way. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. So like our previous passage in verses 1 and 2, Luke begins, or rather Paul begins this uh, verse, or this passage, these two verses, with a question. He asks a question that is dependent upon the preceding context. In other words, it's dependent upon, it's coming from everything that he has just said. And if you remember in verse 1, he's at, he asked, what advantage is there to be a Jew? Or what, it, what advantage has the Jew? This comes after a long uh, time of Paul uh, articulating that ultimately their Jewishness, their ethnicity, and their spiritual heritage, in particular the law and circumcision, did not make the Jews special. It did not protect them or make them immune from the judgment or the wrath of God, particularly in the day of the Lord. And so remember, this answer that that Paul asks and answers rather in verses 1 and 2 in chapter 3 is a bit shocking to us because he says, what advantage? And we would presume from the preceding context that none, there is no advantage to this. And yet what he says is that there is much advantage, much in every way. So there's great value, actually, great advantage in being a Jew. And what Paul says, if you remember in verse 1, if you kind of just move your eyes up there, he says that the advantage or the value is that they have God's word. They have the oracles of God. And, and it's through the oracles of God. The reason there's such great advantage here is that, that the oracles of God are the word of God. The scriptures, the Bible reveals God, teaches us about who he is. And, and therefore, the gift of God's word is God himself, that he reveals himself through his word. And that's the point. That's the point of the advantage or of the value. So God's gift to the Jews and hence the blessing of their their ethnic and their spiritual heritage was primarily the gift of the Hebrew Bible, was primarily the gift of God's word. And and it's the same for us today. We're, We're not special, meaning that we are no more immune to the judgment of God simply because we came to church today, albeit in this unique season. We we are not immune from the judgment of God if we now have a record of opening our Bibles for 30 days in a row. These things do not make us majestic to the creator of all things. They, they don't make us special before him. These, these certainly are patterns of obedience and we want to open up God's word. But the question is never, do you have God's word? Is it on your shelf? Have you opened it? The question that is asked from chapter two and consistent throughout the scriptures is, do you obey it? The value of God's word is dependent upon our obedience and submission to God's word. And, and in particular, it has to do with Christ. That if the scriptures reveal to us Jesus Christ, then, then Jesus, knowing that he is the word made flesh, the visible display of God's worth and beauty, the, the going public, the, the clarity, the incarnation of God himself, then ultimately the scriptures are to point us to him. See, so the word is to our advantage. It's of great value to us, but only if we Obey. Keep, keep moving your eyes up. Look at chapter 2, verse 13. This is, this is what Paul has said. I just want to make sure this is clear in our conscience. Verse 13 in chapter 2. He says, For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous but before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. And then again, chapter 2, verse 20, 
Uh, five, for circumcision is of a deed value if you obey the law. So there is this clear connection that the gift of the law or the entrusting of the law, the word of God, the oracles of God to the people of God is of great value and great merit if we are doing the word, if we are obeying the word, if we are submissive to the word of God. That's why Paul asks them, what if some are unfaithful? Now in verse three, in chapter three, what if some are unfaithful? So this is how he's kind of setting, setting things up for us as we come in deeper into chapter three, that if God's word is only valuable, if God's word is only to our advantage, if we obey it, the question is, what if people don't obey it? What if people are unfaithful? Perhaps you were asking this question the past couple of weeks. What if the law is disobeyed? This, this is what Paul's readers would have likely asked themselves. Y- yes, the Jew had the scriptures, but what if they disobeyed them? And th- this is not just a reiteration of uh, chapter 2, verse 30, 13, and also 25, but, but Paul is building upon this. He's posing a theological question. He's asking if some Jewish people not only break the covenant or disobey the law, but particularly disbelieve that Jesus is the fullest expression or the point of the scriptures, that he is the fulfillment of all of the promises of God, does that mean that God is unfaithful? This covenant being broken, does that mean that God is unfaithful? Or another way of putting it or asking about it is that if God established a covenant and Israel broke that covenant, does that nullify the covenant that God made? Does that nullify the faithfulness of God? That's what we need to consider today. Then understand from verses three and four, does our unfaithfulness nullify or set aside or abolish? That's what that word means. Does our unfaithfulness or faithlessness nullify God's faithfulness? Does our unfaithfulness mean that God is unfaithful? I'd like to put an even finer point on it, if you will, so that we drive this point home and really understand what Paul is getting at. Does our sin change God? Does our sin change God? Now, instinctively, I know you all know and love the word and are obedient to the word. And so you're like, no, absolutely not. The right answer preacher is that God doesn't change, right? So we all, I think, hopefully instinctively respond in this way. But remember, Paul is addressing a bunch of people who were educated Jewish Christians. They know God doesn't change. They know this functionally. They they know this intellectually. They know this cognitively. They would have had the same inclination as perhaps you and I would. So the, the issue is not, do we know the right answer? The issue then, and what we need to really look at today and ask the Lord to reveal in our hearts, is why is it, if we know that, do we act like God changes when we sin? That's what I want to help us see, that we actually act. We disbelieve that God is immutable, that he doesn't change, that he is faithful when sin begins to lay hold of our lives. Because that's, I think, what's really underneath Paul's diatribe here, this sort of literary device. What he's doing is moving into chapter three, asking and answering a series of questions that reveal the character and nature of God. See, we may know that God doesn't change, but we often act like he does. And so where, where we're headed today, where, where we'll explore this particular passage is we, we will hopefully, by God's grace from his word, establish that God indeed does not change. So that, that's not just a an, an, uh, response, an inclination that we have, um, an instinct that we have, but really that we make sure that our minds are sharpened on this, that God does not change, that he is faithful. 
Secondly, we'll establish that even though this is, I think, something that we would wrestle with, that sin doesn't even change God. That when our sin shows up, that God continues to be faithful, that sinners don't change God. But then lastly, we'll look at this, this wonderful reality, that sinners don't change God, but God changes sinners. That, that actually what sin begins to do is tell us that the opposite of what is true of who God is actually is. And so we'll look that God doesn't change and that not even sin changes God and that ultimately God is the one that changes sinners. So let's ask for his help as we continue to explore this great letter uh, to the Romans. So Father, help us. I, I need help. I need, I need help being focused as my mind often wanders. I, I, I need help believing this, not just speaking it, not just reading some notes or reading your word. Father, help me to believe this. Help me to believe and see and savor the truth and beauty of who you are. I pray that for my sisters. I pray that for my brothers. I pray that for the groups that are gathered, the families that are gathered. I pray that for uh, my church family as they're looking at a screen and tempted to hop online and just take this time up to start shopping or something while we're gathered in this unique way as a church. I pray that as moms and dads, often we get incredibly distracted with our kiddos and in many respects for good reason. They need help and care and toys and noise and all of these things happening. And so, Father, a thousand different things will be going on in the next few moments as they have from the very beginning of our time together. And so we just ask that in the middle of that, would you cut through the noise? Would you speak to us? Would you heal us? Would you help us? Would you convict us? Would you comfort us? Would you be our God? And may you help us, Father, to submit and simply be your people. What a wonderful invitation it is that we can come all of us who are weary and heavy laden and your word gives us rest. It restores us. It heals us. It gives us joy. And so, Father, we need that. We need your word. We don't need earthly wisdom that's here uh, for as long as we can hear the word spoken. We need the kind of wisdom that's from above that's enduring and satisfying. And so, Father, would you uh, speak and help us to listen? In Jesus' name, everybody agreed and said, Amen. Well, remember, Paul asked a question to start this passage. So let's look at it again. Romans chapter 3, verse 3. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? And and notice his answer at the beginning of verse 4. By no means. By no means. So the question, does sin, especially unfaithfulness, somehow nullify or absolve or cancel out the faithfulness of God? Does sin change God? Paul's answer um, is one of the most powerful or one of the more powerful literary expressions that he could have employed from the Greek language. He says, by no means, which literally means, or perhaps most literally means, that may it never be. A thousand times, absolutely not, absolutely not. So it's this emphatic, he is so emphatic in his affirmation of God's immutability or his unchanging character, his unchanging nature, especially God's faithfulness, even in the face of his people's unfaithfulness. Now, please notice, Paul is not saying that all Jews are without faith. He's posing a question about some Jews. And the specific lack of faith Paul is referring to, I, I believe, is the particular, the, the particular sin that he is addressing in context is an unbelief or failure to trust 
despite the revelation that God has given. So despite that the oracles of God, despite the overwhelming wisdom and knowledge and insight that they have received from God's word, there is this refusal in some to believe and to be faithful, to be sure this is the story throughout Israel's history. This will be the story throughout your entire history and my entire history over the course of Church in the Square's entire history that we will be unfaithful to the words that God has given us, to to his divine self-disclosure, to the revelation that he has given us. And and even more precisely, some Jews, these that Paul had in mind, didn't obey the law in that they didn't believe that Jesus was indeed the fulfillment that the scriptures had promised, that he was the long-awaited hope, not only of Israel, but that God had promised Israel. This remains the inflection point for Orthodox Jews today, that while we would say, and if we read the Old and the New Testament, that God's promise has been fulfilled in Jesus Christ, Orthodox Jews to this day are waiting for the fulfillment of the messianic promises of God, that that one day a Messiah will come. We believe that in Christ, the Messiah has come. And we believe this is exactly what Paul is addressing here, that is about as fine a point as we can put on it, that this is the issue of Paul's question. That's who's on his mind. This this sin is disbelief and lack of faith and that God has fulfilled his word, that he has fulfilled all things in Jesus Christ. That's Hebrews chapter one. Long ago and many times in many different ways, he spoke through the prophets, but now he's spoken through his son. That now all of the ancient promises, the yes and amen of everything that God has said that he would be and, and do for his people is met exceedingly and abundantly more than we ever could ask for or imagine in Jesus Christ. And so through God's word that he has entrusted to them, he has been faithful to them in Jesus Christ, but they have not been faithful in return. They haven't trusted. And so God's word then is meant to reveal God himself to us. The Old Testament entrusted to Israel and all the oracles of God prepare the way for the anticipation of Jesus Christ. And the New Testament is entrusted to any who believe and announce not only the arrival, but the work and promised return of Christ. So you and I may look at the New Testament and believe, oh, somehow we're absolved to Paul's question here or this sort of theological curiosity that he has. But the question for us, maybe we have believed that Jesus has come, but do we believe that he is still at work? Do we believe that one day he will come again? In other words, do we think that God will continue to be faithful? Do we order our lives in a manner of speaking and believing that God will be faithful to his word? See, God reveals God to us, namely the word made flesh, Jesus Christ, through his Word word, and we'll we'll return to this in a bit. But Paul is asking, does their their sin or does our sin change God? Does our disbelief change God? Does our faithlessness nullify God's faithfulness? And this is where that story of Jesus, as he gathered with those who were both believers, those who trusted him, those who are Jewish certainly and had this long history of understanding the promises and oracles of God. And yet there were some who were legalistic, uh, those Pharisees. And then they also had this group that that Luke mentions as tax collectors and sinners. So they all gathered together and Jesus tells them a story. And he tells them a story about a family. He tells them a story about a family, in particular a father who had two sons. But the story is really not about these sons. In some respects, it's about communities, about how community, how a family community gets fractured and broken and falls into disarray. When the younger son comes to the father, essentially wishes him dead, asks for his inheritance. 
Um, and, and in many respects within this story, one son sort of represents that legalistic crowd who, who stays at home, the older brother does, follows all of the rules. The younger brother who loses all of this money in lavish living in the far off country. The older brother stays home, obeys everything. The younger brother goes off, wastes all of this money. And when the money, when the money runs out, the younger brother begins to make his way home. What the scriptures actually say in Luke 15 is that he comes to himself. He comes to his senses. He sort of wakes up and then begins to move towards repentance as Jesus tells the story. And along the way, along his way home, he prepared a speech. Many of you probably had prepared similar speeches when perhaps you were in high school or college, you were coming back saying, this is what really was happening. This is what I'm gonna say. This is what I'm gonna do. So they don't actually know the truth. So I don't actually look weak. I don't look broken. This is often what we do in repentance. We try to come back to God in sort of a faux weakness in kind of a strength. So he starts to prepare this, this speech that he is going to acknowledge his sin, his faith faithlessness and his unfaithfulness to his father, but he's also going to presume that their relationship has to change. Let's all turn to Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15 verses 18 and 19. So if you're in Romans to the left, go through Acts, then John, and then you'll hit Luke. Luke chapter 15 verse 18. So he's prepared this speech. He's come to his senses believing that the community had been broken, fractured. He's going to come back to his dad, reestablish a relationship, but he's going to bring new terms to the relationship. Here's what he says as he's preparing his speech on the way home. Luke 15, verse 18 and 19. He says, I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. And hear, hear this. Treat me as one of your hired servants. Now, we may read this and think that he's being penitent, that he's feeling the weight of his sin. And and to be sure that there may be some of that, but there's a huge difference. Please, God, help us. There's a huge difference between being repentant and being self-destructive. There's a huge difference between coming to God repentant, overwhelmed by the weight of our sin, ready to confess, and being self-destructive. The son was unfaithful. So he presumed that his father would be too. He presumed that his father would be unfaithful as well. In in other words, that he believed that he had broken the father-son relationship, and that since he broke the father-son relationship, he'd have to come back to his father like a servant, which believing that his father would then have to become his master, not his father anymore. So he believed that because he had sinned that it was going to change his relationship. That's that's why, or that's what the, that Paul's question is to the Romans: Is our faithful faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? Let me explain. If the two sons categorize these two types of listeners that Jesus had in the crowd that day, the Father represents the heavenly Father, and therefore Jesus' explanation of the Father's heart will reveal, as all of Scripture does, the heart and character of our heavenly Father, God Himself. And so here's how the Father responds. Look at verse twenty. In Luke 15. And he rose and came to his father. And while he was still a long way off, it's beautiful, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, here's his speech that he had prepared. Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe 
and put it on him and put a ring on his finger and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to celebrate. To be sure, the father's actions show the prodigality or lavish nature of his love for his wayward son. Not only does he clothe him and and treat him immediately like a son, but his words actually have this even richer impact that where the son was ready to reorient the relationship around a servant and master relationship, right away he calls him, the father calls him his son. You see, the sin of the child did not change the relationship with his father. The sins of that son did not change the relationship with his father. The son's faithlessness did not change, in other words, the faithfulness of the father to his son. Am I preaching to you yet? God's character is not contingent on your behavior. God's character is not contingent upon your behavior. Or as 18th century preacher Charles Spurgeon put it, the glory of God's faithfulness is that no sin of ours has ever made him unfaithful. That no sin of ours has ever made him unfaithful. God's character is not contingent upon our behavior. God's faithfulness is not dependent upon us. Thanks be to God. In fact, our sinful behavior, particularly our faithfulness, faithlessness, actually reveals even more the riches of God's faithfulness to us. See, in all of the ways we fall short, we we see, we enjoy, we can worship him for the ways that he does not. God is faithful in the face of our faithlessness. Therefore, we have to find deep security and hope in God's faithfulness. But one of the evil effects of sin is that every time we sin, we doubt God's faithfulness. See, we can hear this word. We can remind ourselves and know that he is faithful. See that brilliant picture of the father chasing after coming to his son, clothing him, loving him, calling him son. We can trust that God is faithful, but something goes on psychologically. Something goes on in our hearts in the middle of our sin that we need to understand, that we need to confess, we need to admit. So how, how is it then that we act or believe that our sin changes God? What was going on in the heart and mind of that younger son when he's at his lowest point? And, the, and one of the things that comes to mind, I can go back to my dad, but I can't go back to him the same way. I'm going to go home because I know that there is provision and care. He'll accept me, but I bet he won't accept me as I am. I bet he won't accept me still as a son. I bet he still won't accept me in the same way that we had. I, I, bet, I bet that's a loss. See, sin convinces us that we can never go back to the way things were. Why did the son think his faithlessness then was going to change the faithfulness of his father? See, our faithfulness does not nullify the faithfulness of God. Paul says, by no means. So why does this presumably obvious idea need to be stated so emphatically? Because every time we sin, we doubt it. Every time we sin, we doubt his faithfulness. Our lack of faith, we believe, jeopardizes the relationship that we have with God, or rather that we think we once had with God. Think about it. Abandonment is all too common of a practice for human beings. Perhaps you have been abandoned by someone. Perhaps this is one of the things that has deeply marked your story or a group of people, and perhaps when they left you, they either told you or they made it clear through their actions or what they did not say that it was because of you. 
It's because of what you did. It's because of what you said. It's because of what you failed to do. We also can justify our own acts of abandonment of certain relationships because someone else was unfaithful first, that they did the wrong thing first. And to be sure, there are many biblically sound reasons why we would walk away from a harmful relationship or a marriage in which covenant has been broken. I I would like to suggest that that the scriptures do not have nearly as many reasons as we often do. The scriptures do not have nearly as many reasons that, that we would say that we're justified in walking away from a relationship, but we'll save that consideration for another time. Nevertheless, there, there are biblical reasons to dissolve a human covenant. However, we wrongly impose those provisions on our relationship with God or the covenant that he has made with his people. See, God's covenant with his people cannot be broken. I think this is what Jesus understood about the human heart that he was illustrating in the younger son. He believed this younger son did, that the only way he could be forgiven of his sin and of his unfaithfulness to his father was by becoming his father's servant. See, when we get caught up in sin, like really caught up, and it starts messing with the way that we think about ourselves and others, and particularly the way that we think about God, it becomes overwhelming to us. When we get caught up in sin, we we are convinced that we can never go back to the way things were. You see, before we believe that sin changes God, we are convinced that it has irreconcilably changed us. It tells us that nothing will be the same again. We think and act as if sin has, has irreversibly changed the order of things, that no longer am I who I was in Christ, that now I have become someone else. And so when we finally do make our way back to God, when we finally do go to confession, do go to repentance, we try to soften the blow of consequence and shame and judgment by demeaning ourselves, by, by disregarding ourselves and who God has made us, almost by, by almost pulling apart who we are, by being self-destructive. This is not a righteousness that is, that is produced by the humility and reverence that God would have us. It's a preoccupation with self. It's a way of trying to rectify sin with more sin. So when we come back to God and make promises like this, I'll never do that again. I'll never do that thing again. I'll never think about that again. I'll never look at that person that way again. I'm going clean from here on out, right? We start promising a kind of fidelity that we know was actually the thing that got us in trouble in the first place, right? So if our righteousness is not there and, and our righteousness is actually an issue, it can't be the solution. So if we have sinned and therefore we don't have a righteousness on our own, we cannot promise our own righteousness as the solution. Or we give extreme examples of consequence. God, here's what you can do to me if you'll love me again. Here's the thing you can take from me if you'll have me back. Or we suggest, like the younger son, take me as a servant. No longer as a friend, no longer as a son. And in our actions we reveal that we think God will only accept us back if we become less than his child. If we become less than his child. In other words, we are convinced that sin can only make us servants and therefore make God not father, but only master. We think sin has changed us and our relationship with God. That's what begins to happen first. That's the, the psychology, if you will, of what's going on First, I know this takes place in my own heart. What this reveals, even in our overtures of of repentance, is that we think sin is more powerful than God. 
This is what we begin to concede, that sin is more powerful than God, or what we believe. It's like sin now dictates my relationship with the Lord and not God himself. Biblically for us, or for Israel, in Paul's time, this leads us to believe that the covenant or the nature of our relationship with God has been broken. So let's go to that covenant. Let's go to that promise that we might understand better what exactly God has promised his people and the power by which he has promised it. As we are convinced that sin has changed us and that sin will change God and reorient our relationship, this not only produces more shame, but it promotes more distrust. And and it's this vicious cycle if we move away from the covenant and what God actually established. So hear this, Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6. Here's what God says about himself and about his people that he is vowing himself to. For you are a people... Holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Hear this. It was not because you were more in number than any of the other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you for you were the fewest of all all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that your Lord has brought you out with his mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know, therefore, that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keeps his commandments to a thousand generations and repays to their face those who hate him by destroying them. He will not be slack with one who hates him. He will repay him to his face. You shall, therefore, be careful to do the commandments and the statutes and the rules that I command you today. Hear this. The covenant is not made nor kept by the faithfulness of God's people. It was not established on that. It was not made on that. Therefore, it is not kept by that. Rather, the covenant is based upon the sovereignty, love, and faithfulness of God. We might say it this way, that the strength of of our faith is not measured by our faithfulness, not our commitment, not our excellence, not our consistency, not our piety, not our attendance, not the words we say and don't say. It's not about us. Rather, the strength of our faith is always predicated, determined, and grounded upon the faithfulness of the one in whom we place our faith. This is such good news that that the strength of our faith is not about our strength, it's about the strength and merit, faithfulness, beauty, and glory of God. Therefore, sin never sets the agenda of our relationship with God. God sets the agenda. God is the power. God sets the parameters. Therefore, our faithfulness does not change God's faithfulness. This means that true repentance, then, when we think about coming back to God, no matter what we've done, True repentance should not be focused on ourselves. We do not come back to God in repentance, acknowledging just all of the ways that we've fallen short and all of the promises that we will keep in the future. What we do in repentance is that we we do what sin taught us not to do. See, sin teaches us to take our eyes off of God. Sin teaches us to be preoccupied with self. And therefore, repentance is just the opposite. Asking the Lord that he would remove the focus that we have on ourselves, a preoccupation with self, and actually center our eyes and fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross and despised its shame. This is what it means, like the younger son, for us to come back to our senses. To come back to ourselves is to put our eyes back on our heavenly Father. See, we've considered the faithfulness of God, that it doesn't change because of sin and unfaithfulness, thanks be to God. 
we've seen that our tendency to act like God has changed is really an issue in our own hearts, believing that sin has changed us, that sin has sort of changed the composition of the covenant or promise that we have with God, the relationship that we have, believing then that sin has more power than God. So what's our hope in this? How, how is it that then we are to move forward in this? Well, first, let's understand something. God is faithful, or God's faithfulness rather, is expressed in two particular kind of ways in our unfaithfulness, in consequence and mercy. This is how God expresses. This is, this is sometimes like, can I just be real? We miss God's faithfulness because we're looking for it in all the wrong places. A lot of times we're looking for God's faithfulness in that he is faithful to me and what I've asked him for and that he is following my word, right? That this is really when we, God is faithful, why? Because he gave me stuff I wanted. That's not biblically what God's faithfulness is about. In many respects, God's faithfulness is his, is his consistency in not only following his own word and being true to his own word, but bringing consequence and mercy when we are not true to his word. This is God being faithful. That means there is always a cost to our sin. There is always a cost to our sin. But in Christ, we never have to pay the full price because Jesus already did. So so when God is is faithful, he, he brings consequence and he brings mercy. That there is always a cost to sin. But in Christ, we never have to pay the the full penalty because Jesus already did on the cross. That's our hope. That, that, that means that no, not only does our unfaithfulness not change God, but God's faithfulness in the face of our sin actually changes us. Jesus uh, speaks about this and put about as fine a point as you can on it when he said this in John chapter 15, verse 15. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I call you friends, for all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. In covenant with God, despite our faithlessness, we are not downgraded, nor belittled, nor dismantled to the inhumanity of a kind of different relationship or different kind of order to be back in God's good graces. Jesus is the one who, in a shocking fashion, Jesus is the one who served us. That's what Matthew 20 tells us, that the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And and in his faithful service to us, Jesus changes us. So our sin does not change God, but God's faithfulness changes us from darkness dwellers to citizens in kingdoms of light, from dead corpses to living reflections of God's glory, from enemies to daughters and son. Church, sin and sinners don't change God. God changes sinners. Our faithlessness doesn't change God. God's faithfulness changes us. This is rich and good news for us when we come penitently before him. See, God's faithfulness expressed in his consequence and his mercy that he gives to us is fully demonstrated then on the cross, the cross of Jesus Christ. God's transformative faithfulness is evident and and it begins to be whispered, if you will, in the story of King David in the face of his grave sin. David committed adultery with a woman named Bathsheba and then murdered her husband Uriah. In response, God sent Nathan 
prophet Nathan to confront David. And David initially, when he hears the way in which Nathan sort of brings this consequence or brings this story, brings this accusation to David, David is very arrogant. He's very self-righteous. But as soon as he realizes that Nathan is not talking about someone else, but actually talking about David, David is broken. In other words, he comes to his senses. He comes to himself. He lays down his defenses and he cries out to God. 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 13 and 14, give us that picture of what David says and how Nathan responds. In that moment of coming to his senses, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has also, or also has put away your sin. You shall not die. There's the mercy. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have been, have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. There's the consequence. You see, God's faithfulness is demonstrated to David giving us a whisper of the cross that would be coming one day in the consequence and mercy bestowed upon David. Notice that this is who God has been and this is who God has always been. Therefore, this is who he forevermore will be. God has promised and promised David that he would not kill the king and he did not. But he also said that the consequence or the penalty of sin is death. So the consequence is the loss of the child that Bathsheba was expecting. And the mercy is that David gets to live and stay on the throne. Pondering the sin and lament, David wrote in Psalm 51, Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. David's confession is not filled with self-loathing or self-destruction. David's repentance is not self-inflicting. It's not just a masochistic cry to God. David's prayer is not centered on himself at all. It's centered on the faithfulness of God. Paul actually takes these words from Psalm 51 and he weaves them into his answer here in Romans chapter 3. So if you're still in Luke 15, flip back to Romans chapter 3 verse 4. Paul takes these words from history, takes these words from King David, takes these words from the psalm, and he incorporates it here in his answer to the question, does the faithfulness or the unfaithfulness of some nullify the faithfulness of God? Here's what he says, by no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. David submits to the consequence of God and calls for the mercy of God for the sake of God. He submits to the consequence of God. He calls for the mercy of God for the sake of God, for his name, that he would be glorified, that God would be honored even in the middle of his sin. Paul calls for the same response from his Jewish readers. 
The Christian readers there in first century Rome, despite the faithlessness of Israel to the oracles of God, God is faithful for his own sake. Let him be true and everyone else be a liar. God is God and there is no other. You see, when we really repent of sin, we are always more impressed with God's faithfulness than we are with our unfaithfulness. We, we are always drawn to true repentance because of who God is, not because of who we are not. This is what's going on here. His faithfulness is way more outstanding than our sin. This is really good news because his yoke's easy, his burden is light, right? For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. There is joy when we come to the Lord. Yes, we confess our sin. Yes, we acknowledge the consequence. We call out for mercy, but we do so all for the sake of God, for his glory. See, the faithfulness of God is further demonstrated in his forgiveness and this new life that he gives us. In the middle of their lament and sorrow, David and Bathsheba were told, comfort one another and she is with child again. And their son, from that pregnancy, becomes king, King Solomon. Solomon, among many other things, and certainly was not a perfect person. Not righteous on his own accord, as nobody is. But Solomon carries the lion of David, through which Jesus Christ is born. So we see this kind of faithfulness of God, not simply individually for David, but God's faithfulness to David is for his own glory in that it is the way in which he brings about his redemptive plan and the yeses and the amens and the fulfillments of all of his promises. That is Jesus Christ, his son, the son of the living God comes through this line. Our unfaithfulness does not change God. God's faithfulness changes us. And see, this is part of what I think Jesus was getting at when he tells the story of the prodigal son. Is that as, as unfaithfulness begins to fracture and break apart this earthly community, the Lord is introducing us to a different kind of community. A kind of community that, that, that practices repentance. A kind of community that, that trusts in the Lord and his faithfulness. A kind of community that, that welcomes the lost, that welcomes the legalist, that welcomes the lawless, that welcomes all, not based on their own merit, not because they are legalistic, not because they are lawless, but because God is faithful to his people. See, God's words will be justified. God's, God will prevail as judge. And on the cross, God's eternal demonstration of faithfulness placed the weight of consequence on Christ so that the Father could place the weight of mercy upon us, his unfaithful children. See, our sin does not change God. Our faithlessness does not change God. God is the one who changes us. And it's for his glory and it's for our joy. So Heavenly Father, we say, may it be so. May you be honored, may you be true and all else be a liar that we might be a people who center our lives around your faithfulness. The faithfulness that has changed us individually, the faithfulness that has seen our community, not only in this time, but throughout all of time, your people knit together and held together by your faithfulness. So God, may we trust you. May we submit to you. May we confess to you. May we repent to you. May we, Father, ultimately see your good and pleasing and perfect will carried out in our time and our hearts. So do this in my heart. Do this in the hearts and minds of my brothers and sisters. For your glory, our good, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.